Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. You are listening to First Fight by Reverend Peter Yonker. Let's pray for a blessing on the reading and preaching of the Lord's Word. Lord, send your Holy Spirit into this place and bless all of us. Bless me as I preach and bless all of us as, as we listen. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing and glorifying in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Our scripture reading tonight, this New Testament fight that I spoke of earlier in the service, takes place at the end of Acts chapter 15. So Acts chapter 15, starting at verse 36, and then I'm going to read all the way through 16 verse 5. So it's sort of two stories as the NIV lays it out. But both, I think, are important together. So Acts 15, uh, verses 36 through 16, verse 5. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. So they want to revisit, retrace the first missionary journey that they went on together. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul didn't think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. So Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but his father was Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. And Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. This is the word of the Lord. When I used to teach um, preaching at Calvin Seminary, sometimes my students would ask me, um, Professor Yonker, do you think it is a good idea to start off a sermon with a joke? Do you think it's a good idea to start off a sermon with a joke? You know, it helps sort of build rapport and just loosens people up. Do you think a joke is a good way to start off a sermon? And my answer was always, no, that that is a terrible way to start off a sermon. You're just pandering to the audience, and it it gives an aura of that things that you're about to say aren't going to be that serious when you want to, you know, you're talking about the gospel. You're talking about the most important things in the world. That said, I'm going to start off tonight with a joke. And I'm not doing it to loosen you up. I'm doing it because I think that this joke fits perfectly with my theme this evening. And my guess is that some of you have heard this joke before. It was a Christian Reformed man. He was an elder in his church, very upstanding, came to church twice on Sunday, a lovely fellow, was on a cruise in the South Pacific when the ship went down, terrible shipwreck. He was the only one who survived. He survived by clinging to a bit of floating debris, and he found his way... Uh, to a deserted island. And there he managed to survive. He lived on fish and fresh water 
And he survived there for, for not just a few weeks, he survived there for three years. And after three years, finally a military vessel came by and they came ashore and they found this haggard man somehow, somehow still clinging to life, somehow still surviving. And among the amazing things about his survival was that there were not one, not two, but three huts built on this island. The man had built three full huts. And so they said to him, why did you build three huts? I said, well, that's simple. That hut over there, that's, that's my house. That's where I live. And I'm there from Monday to Saturday. That hut over there, that's my church. That's where I go to church on Sunday. And they said, oh, okay, but what about the third one? Oh, he said, that one. That's the church I used to go to. <laughs> Now, maybe you've heard that one before. I think it's a pretty old joke. Maybe your laughter is polite. And it's told in a variety of, of traditions, right? When Christian Reformed people tell it, it's a Christian Reformed guy on the boat. Uh, when Episcopalians tell it, it's Episcopalian guy on the boat. When Presbyterians tell it, it's a Presbyterian guy on the boat. Um, so it's an old joke, but it, it gets at a true and sad reality of our life as Christians. We are people from the very beginning, who have split. We come to sharp disagreement, and we get angry at each other until we can't stand each other's company and we break the unity of the body of Christ. It's an old, old problem, at least as old as Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas stopped speaking to each other if they were in the same room together at some sort of gathering, you could feel the tension in the room it was so bad that people didn't invite them to the same social gatherings anymore. They simply were not on speaking terms. And it all centered around John Mark, a young Christian who'd done some traveling with them, who was in fact Barnabas's cousin, a cousin of Barnabas. And when Paul and Barnabas had gone on their first missionary journey, John Mark had volunteered to go along, and, and Paul and, and Barnabas had both agreed that this was a good idea. This young fellow, maybe 20 years old, he could learn a thing or two, he could be apprenticed and become a, a force for good in the church. And they got in a boat and they sailed to Cyprus and they started their journey, and of course, like all missionary journeys, it was really, really hard. There were sleepless nights, there was hunger. They planted some churches, they had some success. By the time they got to the other end of Cyprus, they went across the whole island, they were supposed to sail on to Asia Minor, to Turkey. But by something in Cyprus, by that point, John Mark had given up. He was tired of this. He was homesick. And so when Paul and Barnabas sailed off to Asia Minor, John Mark got in a boat and sailed back to his ma, much to Paul's disgust. Now, it was many, many months later, and Paul and Barnabas decided that maybe they should take a second missionary journey. They should go out and maybe strengthen some of those churches, maybe plant a few more. And Barnabas heard about that, and John Mark heard about that, and John Mark wants to come along again. And Barnabas thinks that's a really good idea. Barnabas' name means son of encouragement, and true to his name, he thought that, that he wanted to take John Mark along with them. He said, Paul, we should give John Mark another chance. After all, isn't it our Lord who said, judge not lest you be judged? Paul would have none of it. Forget it, he said. 
Mission work is hard at the best of times. I do not have the energy or the time to drag that mama's boy all over Asia Minor. He can stay home. After all, wasn't it our Lord who said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God? They fought, they went back and forth, and eventually they split. And it must have seemed like a horrible tragedy to anyone who knew them. How could these two men split over something like that? They had been through so much together. That first missionary journey, they were like soldiers in the trenches. They had like the bond of a band of brothers. They were so close, the things they'd been through in Iconium. People came after them and tried to kill them, and they barely escaped together with their lives. In Lystra, Paul had been stoned and left for dead, and Barnabas and the rest of them had to come and restore Paul. They had literally been through the wars. And not only had they been through the wars, they'd seen amazing success, right? They'd planted churches. They'd seen the Holy Spirit change lives. They'd seen all kinds of amazing and wonderful things. They had so much history together. How can a disagreement over this boy split them apart? And it's not only their shared experience that makes you wonder how they could be split apart. It's, it's the things that Paul taught and wrote. Think about it. Here Paul is saying to John Mark, forget it, I'm done with you. And this is the same man who wrote, bear with one another, Colossians 3.13, bear with each other, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the same Paul who wrote in Philippians 3, or Philippians 2, excuse me, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not just look to his or her own interests, but to the interests of others. This is the same Paul who wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not insist on its own way. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love bears all things. Now, to be fair, many of these things were things that Paul wrote after this fight, but these are things that he'd been preaching all along. These were things that were central to the gospel. And apparently, Paul just had, and he's human, a hard time always practicing what he preached. Stubbornness, hypocrisy, a pride that refuses to give in, all the things that lead church people to divide and fight with each other today are present in that fight with Paul and Barnabas 2,000 years ago. The problem that we see in Paul and Barnabas is the problem of the whole church in miniature. Now, before I go on to reflect on the rest of the Bible passage and the story of Paul and Barnabas and what the Lord did with that, I'd like to reflect a little bit on the, the age, the 2,000-year-old problem of conflict in the church and just imagine, if Paul and Barnabas were in front of us, what would we say to these two men that might prevent them from this terrible fight? First, I think I want to say to both of them, and, and I'll be honest, maybe especially to Paul, to remember what God has done for us in the past. Avoiding fights has a lot to do with our ability to remember what God has done with us in the past. Paul seems to think that, Barnab that, that uh, John Mark is irredeemable, that John Mark can't possibly 
be salvaged and be used of the Lord. And you want to say to Paul, no, wait, 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 wait a minute, Paul. Do you remember your own story? Do you remember what you called yourself? You said you were the worst of sinners. Do you remember how opposed to God you were and God turned you around? Why in heaven's name don't you think that he can't do the same thing with John Mark? Paul, of course, remembers what God has done for him, but that remembering hasn't filtered all the way down to his soul, or at least it seems not to have. If Paul truly at that moment remembered what God had done for him, it's hard to believe that he wouldn't be able to give John Mark a second chance. And so it is with us in our fights. We're not like Paul exactly, in terms of having a Damascus Road experience, but all of us, every single day know that we are people who exist and subsist by the grace of God. Every day we sin, every day we do foolish things, and it is the grace and love of God that holds us together. And if we went around with a living sense of that, if we had that memory of ourselves as grace-loved sinners, we would be so much more patient with each other and with others in this world. The longer I'm in ministry, the more I think that so much wisdom is in the doctrine of total depravity. I know that's not what you want to hear, but it really is true. And by total depravity, the, 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 the notion that we're all sinful, I, just knowing your sin is not enough, but knowing your sin and that it's forgiven in Jesus. Knowing that you're weak and that you're foolish and that you're like a child, but that God loves you anyway and embraces you. If we walked around with a living sense of that every single day, we would be so much more patient and so much more wise. If Paul and Barnabas were in front of me, I counseled them to remember their past. The second thing I might counsel Paul and Barnabas, and I think this is something that shows up in our text, is not only to remember what God has done in the past, but to think about what God will do in the future. Why did Paul and Barnabas turn this dispute over this 20-year-old boy into something that divided them, right? It seems ridiculous. And I, I can't know exactly, but, but I strongly suspect that they do what so many of us do in, when we dispute about small things that end up dividing us. They, they, they make that small thing stand for an enormous principle that cannot be shaken. So you can imagine that Paul feels like he can't possibly allow John Mark to come on this thing because to do so would be to give up on discipline in the church. People have to keep their commitments. And if we let John Mark against, get away with this, then all discipline is gone in the church. Everything becomes lackadaisical and the church falls apart. I must stand on this. He attaches this one thing to that enormous principle. And you can imagine Barnabas doing exactly the same thing. If we say no to John Mark, we're giving up on grace, we're giving up on God's power to transform, this is terrible, I will not yield. What they're doing is taking an adiaphora and turning it into an absolute. What is an adiaphora? Adiaphora is a concept that comes from John Calvin. And John Calvin said there were many, many things in, in the church that we disagree about and we dispute about that should be considered adiaphora, things of indifference. Matters that we should try to figure out and we should try to discern God's will, but that we should not split over. There were many, many things like this. There were certainly things that were worth fighting for and there are things that are worth splitting about in the church. There are non-negotiable things. But there are many, many adiaphora and we turn an adiaphora 
like whether a 20-year-old should come on a mission trip, into an absolute. We do something foolish and unnecessarily divisive. It's fine to split over the things that are at the heart of the faith, but to split over things like worship style or a mediocre preacher or, in my humble opinion, small differences about the nature of Christ's presence in the bread and the wine. And it seems to me we're doing something very foolish. And we're putting too much emphasis on human power. We are not the ones who grow this church. It's not our decisions or intelligence that make the church go. This is Christ's church. He is the Lord of history. And we put the church in his hands. Which brings us to the end of this passage, the future part of this. Paul and Barnabas split, and God takes it and does something remarkable with it. Paul and Barnabas do this split, which I think is, is, is a bad thing, is a sinful thing, and I name it that. Paul takes this broken, uh, God takes this broken thing, and he makes something beautiful out of it. What happens? Paul starts to go with Silas. They start their second missionary journey, and they become this long partnership, and these two people become enormously effective, right? They, they end up in all, Europe, they end up in Corinth and Philippi and Athens. God does amazing things through them. Meanwhile, Barnabas goes with John Mark, and they go to Cyprus, and they strengthen the churches there. This broken thing gets made into two new pairs, and what's the bottom line? Chapter 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in their faith and increased daily in their numbers. The Lord of the church bent this bad situation to his good purposes. What happened to Paul and Barnabas and John Mark after this fight? Well, we know that Paul and John Mark reconciled. We know that because some of the things that, that Paul wrote in some of his other letters. In Philemon, it was clear that John Mark was working with him again. In Colossians, he commends John Mark to the Colossian church as a worker. He's not just, you know, tolerating John Mark. He commends him. And then finally, in 2 Timothy 4, when Paul thinks he's about to die, he calls John Mark. He wants John Mark to come to him because John Mark has become so important in his life. It's a beautiful testimony of God's reconciliation. What about Paul and Barnabas? Did they reconcile? We have no idea. I sure hope so. But there's literally nothing in Scripture that tells us that they did. But even if they didn't at that time, we know that they reconciled in their future. Because someday in the new creation, all three of these men will meet Jesus. And I can imagine Jesus calling them together. And the three men coming together and laughing and maybe weeping, if such weeping can be happening in the new creation, maybe weeping, weeping for joy and embracing each other. All their past differences gone like the morning mist. And I can imagine the three of them sitting down and talking, and one of them, and, and I picture John Mark doing it, say, hey guys, you want to hear a joke? 
Do you ever hear the one about the Christian Reformed guy stuck on a desert island? And of course, both Paul and Barnabas will have heard that joke a million times by then, but they'll say, no, tell us the joke. And John Mark will tell us, and they will all laugh together. The laugh of the forgiven and the redeemed. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the hope of your gospel. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who comes into our brokenness through Christ on the cross and in this story through your reconciling providence and that you are able to make good things out of our messes. Lord, we pray that in the spirit of that grace we may go forth from this place striving for your goodness but doing so without anxiety, with good hope, and always, always together with love for one another. In Christ we pray it. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.